นโมทัสสะบุคคะทัวราตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคะทัวราตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคะทัวราตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามสังในช่วงเวลาคุยกันครั้งนี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่นี้ในที่ Presumably, also an awareness of the possibility for it being otherwise. Um, you don't have to be very educated or or very aware to be able to see that it really doesn't have to be this way. Uh, the poverty and the in, unfairness and injustice in society, and the insanity and the unhappiness, one can certainly see there are resources and. And imagine how there could be um, potential for things to be otherwise. And so this this fellow's question: Well, are, are Buddhists making a difference? And he he was also referring to the Arab Spring, I think is that what they call it, and um, and uh, North Africa. And and I haven't been following the politics of that, and I I, I I'm aware that. That um, some unpleasant characters um, got taken out of their position, and how things have changed, and who's there now in their place, I don't know. But uh, I think there's generally this concern that we should be able to do more about our situation. And is Buddhism helping? Uh, are we contributing? It also comes to my mind the number of times that are various, particularly. Uh, uh, Sri Lankan people who've been in the monastery and have talked to me about, oh, the Christians they seem much better organised than we Buddhists. You know, we just we just don't seem to have it together. You know, the Christians they have all these meetings and 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 they seem to organise themselves better. And and uh, if you look at what's going on in China, it certainly seems like the Christians are are really getting themselves set up and having a big influence and. And so, yeah, those some people who consider themselves Buddhists are uh, concerned that maybe we should be doing more. So, anyway, in the course of this conversation, um, my my response to this question was, "Are we contributing?" and and I, I feel very uh, confidently that we are contributing, but perhaps not necessarily in the way that that. Uh, Is giving immediate results or the sort of results that people might want to see, because I, I don't. In my my confidence in Buddhism is not about it being a political system or a source for revolution. Um, in fact, when you look back in history and you come across occasions where Buddhism was quoted as being um, uh, A cause for revolution. Uh, in most cases, it's pretty unpleasant stuff that was going on. Um, I suppose one, one could think of King Asoka and his 
his uh, impressive turnaround and, and the, the wonderful effect that he had in India. Uh, and he attributed that to his understanding of Buddhism. But <clears throat> very rarely, it seems, through history, um, and I would say thankfully, do you find people waving the Buddhist banner and going to war. It doesn't lend itself to that. But what I, I would think that, and what I do feel confident is in our contribution, is, is the Buddhist teaching on, as we understand it, as we refer to it, is right view. And you look at, you know, where are all the difficulties? You know, I mean, there's all the resources. There's no question of resources on the planet. Nobody needs to be going hungry. There's all the technology for the distribution. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be this way. So why is it this way? Well, the root cause for the injustice and the unfairness and the, and the, the insanity of the planet is the way our consciousness is configured. That it's not beautiful the way human beings express themselves a lot of the time. Instead of wisdom and compassion, it's it's greed, aversion, and delusion. And I feel very strongly that what Buddhism can contribute to our situation, to our global situation, is right view, is a teaching which basically helps us grow up in terms of consciousness. It it's a it's an education rather than a revolution. That, that the Buddha's teaching is a body of wisdom which has the potential to reorient our hearts and minds, reorient our consciousness, so that we are living in accordance with reality. At the moment, we're not living in accordance with reality. The, the global economy, the, the politics, the, and all the rest of it, is serious out of alignment with reality and hence we have the unpleasantness and the, the unnecessary suffering. But all of us here, I'm sure, have had the experience and have faith in the possibility that when consciousness is freed from the poisons of greed, aversion and delusion, well then something beautiful can happen. And it's not necessarily a new political structure that we figured out. It's not necessarily something that our minds came up with. Maybe it's more like a, an intuitive response to situations. You can see, and perhaps in everyday life, where, you know, just a mundane example of where you're struggling with somebody, some unfortunate, unpleasant relationship, and you've got a lot of resentment and bitterness and feeling bad about it. But what do we do? We exercise contemplation and and reflection, and you see, well, dwelling on our will doesn't help. Yeah, that, that the idea that there's a, a solid person here, hating a solid person there, is born out of delusion. And we bring mindfulness to bear, and we see that we can, with right restraint, with the cultivation of kindness, of gentleness, we can inhibit this crazy reaction of wanting to hurt people. You know, use a little wise reflection, mindfulness and restraint, can come up with this, this appreciation that it's possible to live differently in this relationship. And so just this effort, we put into it maybe for a while, and then suddenly in a situation whereby normally we might have blown up or we might have created an unpleasant situation, we find a very different experience happens. And it's not because of a willful manipulation, I don't believe. I think merely looking at 
our situation, whether it's personally, individually, or globally, collectively, as we need more and better political structures or more or better ideas about how to live together, we do need to think about those things, of course, as we've got these, these brains that we can use in that way, but if that's all we do, I think it's unfortunate. And I don't think that's what Buddhism necessarily... I don't think that's what we need to be looking at as Buddhism contributing in that area. But where Buddhism can contribute, I think, is providing us with the equipment so we can clean up our hearts and minds. So identifying, so okay, we've got this unfortunate circumstance we're living in, it certainly could be otherwise, but it certainly, it certainly could be a lot worse as well. And this is something that hopefully we take from our Buddhist teachings, that it is possible to sink into feeling very hard done by, because if you watch the 24-hour news, you can get the idea that the world's an absolute mess. But somebody introduced me recently to a fellow you might be familiar with, a guy called Steven Pinker, who I don't know about all of his views, but certainly some of the research that he's reporting, which I'd heard of in other ways as well, but also just the research throughout human history, recorded human history, which clearly reveals that at this time in human civilization, there are fewer wars and it is much less likely that you're going to suffer a brutal death than ever before. This is the reality. This is the truth. And yet you talk to a lot of people and they can be so miserable and negative about humanity and about our predicament. The truth is, throughout all human history, it was much more likely that you're going to suffer a horrible, murderous death than you are right now. And and as I said, statistically, there are fewer wars now and have been for a long time than ever before. So whether one's looking or reading at people like Steven Pinker or or just recognising for yourself what happens when you allow your heart and mind to sink into a negative worldview. It's not an obligation. Wise reflection and mindfulness shows us that actually to have a negative worldview is not an obligation, it's a choice. And what happens if we make a choice to have a positive worldview? Instead of, you know, half empty, we could have half full. Uh, And now, uh, again, we're talking about mindful choice here. We're not talking about a naive optimism. Uh, I like to to think of myself or describe myself as a strategic optimist. That is that I, I I choose to assume a strategy of being optimistic because I think it affects the outcome of things. Now, a naive optimist can be kind of they can be kind of boring and dangerous. Actually, people they, they kind of like blink it. You can get um, serious fundamentalists who are very optimistic all the time, but you can't necessarily trust what they're talking about because they've blinkered out a lot of the bad stuff. There is a lot of bad stuff. There's no doubt about it. There's a lot of bad stuff. A lot of bad people around. A lot of suffering, and just to merely focus on goodness just to merely focus on the light and pretend that there's not all this pain and suffering around is perhaps more accurately described as naive, not, not mind, mindful. So, so getting back to what Buddhism can and, and be hopefully is contributing is the set of skills, a set of skills for addressing the distortions of consciousness. All the mess... The mess is not here because of the 
the dolphins or the trees or, or one of the messes here because of human consciousness. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't believe, I don't know, maybe some people think there's aliens out there doing bad stuff to us, but I don't. I think it's all us. I think, you know, the potential that we have for being kind and good and generous and wise is compromised. We have this huge potential, but it's compromised consistently because of these warps or these distortions in human consciousness. And what the Buddha is aiming at doing is giving us the tools, giving us the skillful means for addressing these distortions of consciousness. When consciousness is not distorted, when consciousness is pure, it manifests like the Buddha, which is why we bow down to the Buddha. Perfect wisdom, perfect compassion, perfect purity. That's why it's a worthy refuge. But when consciousness is distorted, is disfigured, it manifests as greed, aversion and delusion. And then all the pain that comes from that. I would uh, suggest that Buddhism is not a, a revolutionary element of social change, but rather an educational tool or, or program for growing up. You know, and it's like consciousness. When, like with growing up, you don't really see people growing up. You've got a little baby and you know, one day, the next day, the next day, you don't see them growing up or... A, or an infant, or a teenager, you don't see them changing, really. But in gaps of five years or ten years, you say, oh, right, yeah. And I think, similarly, perhaps, within our own practice, hopefully, you know, if we're looking for radical, revolutionary change in our consciousness, you know, we're probably going to be disappointed. We may have occasional useful insights but then the process of integrating those insights grounding those insights in terms of our experience in terms of our relationship in terms of our participation in life is a very very gradual tedious humbling process so buddhism has the potential for contributing wonderfully by giving the teachings that are called as right view and then equipping us equipping us with the skillful means for living out of those, living in accordance with those right views. And I think that's, uh, that's also worth really spending some time thinking about. The, the extent of the Buddha's skillful means. Yeah? So we, we could, we could, um, we could, and presumably we do, all feel good about, wow, we're lucky to have come across these teachings. This is fortunate because... You know, I know myself, I sometimes think, God, what would I have done if I hadn't come across Dhamma? You know, I mean, everything else I've come across is either, you know, indulgence in, in something heedless or denial. You know, it's just the only alternative. You know, pretending, pretending it's not as awful as it is or just sinking yourself into something, you know, unhealthy. But this teaching of the middle way to be able to cultivate an awareness which feels the pain when it arises, but also appreciates the joy and pleasure of life when it's there, and hopefully is able to ride through the middle using all the joy and sorrow of life as the nutriment for cultivating wisdom. That's what the Dhamma's all about, this middle way which introduces us to the theory, which is in fact, you know, probably one would say is the initial skill of of Buddhist teachings to get the right formula, 
to just, just get our thinking right. That you know we're not we're not victims. We're not you know some, I think for a lot of people on the planet, um, I don't know how one would ever figure this out, but it seems to me for a lot of people on the planet, they seem to have this view that you're born like this and that's it. And it's not just now; it's throughout all time. You know, people, you know, your astrological configuration—that's it. You're born under these signs, and that's it. You're like this. You're that sort of a person. You know, you've got this planet on the horizon when you were born, and you've got that planet there, and that planet there, and that can, you know determines your your character, or or you've got this genetic inheritance, and that determines your character, or that's what the Buddha called uh, wrong view. That's that's. That's attaching to an opinion, a view, which doesn't necessarily accord with reality. Whatever inferences might come from the planets or from genetics or, or whatever, from your diet when you're a child or other environmental influences, yes, of course, all of these things shape our character, definitely. We pay attention to them. But the cultivation of awareness, the cultivation of mindfulness means that there's a capacity to be able to reflect on these things, to see how we're affected by all these influences and not be defined by them. So not to make ourselves into this permanent fixed thing, this victim. This happened to me at such and such a stage of life and so I'm going to spend the rest of my life suffering. Such thoughts can arise, but what is it? What is it that no such thoughts? The Buddha was inviting us to... to exercise the power of wise reflection, mindfulness and wise reflection, so that we can get some perspective on these stories that we keep telling ourselves over and over and over again. Things happen, for sure. And then we create a story about things that happen, and then we just spend the rest of our life telling ourselves these stories. Well, the exercise of mindfulness and wise reflection means you, you know, we can actually pull the plug on those stories. We don't have to keep repeating them. We don't have to <clears throat> tell ourselves. So that's an important skill. If we're considering our repertoire of skillful means, we've got the basic teaching of right view that the Buddha gave us with, that freedom from suffering is possible, wisdom compassion is possible. We don't have to live in the state of limited being. We've got this confidence, and then we develop the skillful means that accord with that. And perhaps the first would be this getting our thinking in line. We're not victims. We don't have to believe in the stories. The basic, the very basic Buddhist theory that all conditions are impermanent is not even something that we have to necessarily believe in. We can investigate it. We can look around and see, was there anything that's permanent? So using our thinking in a skillful way and then also developing the developing the the tool of attention. You know, again, it's a, a skillful means that I assume all of us here have had some experience that that you can dissipate attention and just let the mind wander here, wander there, dwelling on getting lost in the past and fantasizing about the future and and just caught up in condition activity, or we can choose an object and we can choose to focus on the object. We can choose to still the mind. You know, just by way of experiment, we say, what happens 
if we inhibit this compulsive, distracted mind, and in other words, focus attention, gather all the energy together, focus attention, what happens? We experience consciousness in a new way. And so developing this skillful means to learn to see that we're not, again, our consciousness is not just how it happens to be. You know, you wake up in the morning, well, I don't know about you, but when I, when I wake up in the morning, I'm barely functional sometimes. I'm groggy and kind of finding my way around and it takes a while before I'm actually, you know, responsible. You shouldn't come and ask me anything too early in the morning because I might make a bad judgment. I might make a bad judgment later on as well, but it's perhaps less likely when consciousness is more bright and more expanded, more alive. And, well, not just something mundane like that, but also recognising that it's, it's suitable to develop the skill of learning to concentrate the mind. And then also to experiment with, with this skill. Now, there's many ways of concentrating. You can concentrate in a very exclusive way. We're using a lot of willpower and, and go and probably some of us have had such an experience we just kind of push aside all the distractions, all the things you don't want to know about and just hammer on your meditation object until you break through and something drops and you have a nice experience and then, wow, that's good. And then you think you've arrived somewhere, which, you know, is probably almost certainly temporary. And then when circumstances change, you get out there again, you say, what happened to my wonderful state of mind? And so then you go back to your meditation again and you go at it again, concentration, concentration, exclusion, exclusion, and trying to get back to your wonderful experience again and you can become a concentration junkie. And instead of taking some substance that you've been previously abusing, now you're just abusing consciousness with this excessive willpower. It's quite possible. A lot of meditators, a lot of Buddhists do it. And it's a, a quick road to becoming a fundamentalist. You can become a fundamentalist Buddhist, not to mention fundamentalist of any other persuasion, but there are a lot of fundamentalist Buddhists around. And one of the characteristics of fundamentalist Buddhists is everybody else is wrong. So this is, this is, I would suggest, an unskillful approach to engaging in Buddhist teachings. You know, if we're talking about developing our repertoire of skills that the Buddha equipped us with, you know, we've got to have a mindful relationship to these tools, to these skillful means. And so whether we're studying or exercising concentration... If there's mindfulness, well-developed mindfulness there, then there's also a quiet sort of a questioning going on. You know, what is the, what is the bigger picture? What's the overall effect? You know, now some people will use their, their study of the teachings to just go up into their head and come, become a complete smart aleck that's got all the answers for everything, and they are so boring, these people, because they can't listen to anybody else. They're, they're, they're kind of inflated, kind of... Buddhists who've got the answers to everything. Uh, well, similarly, that's uh, with concentration. You, people who've got a particular aptitude for concentration can have amazing experiences, apparently. But one of the characteristics of their unfortunate imbalance is, as I was saying, that everybody else is wrong. And, and I, I would think this is not a beautiful contribution that Buddhism is making to the world. Uh, it's dividing people up rather than bringing people together. My time living with my teacher Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Tate or, or you hear 
you know, and read about the experience of when the Buddha was around or other great Buddhist teachings is, is there's like a, an atmosphere of concord and harmony around them. You know, one of the expressions of Dhamma, when it's, when it's balanced, when it's embodied, when it's truly skillful, truly mature, is it manifests in increased harmony and well-being and increased beauty. So developing these, uh, these skillful means, our, uh, cultivating our repertoire of skills, whether it's becoming more informed with regards to the theory of practice is important, using the tool of concentrated attention is important, but also not just, you know, not just limiting our cultivation to these perhaps more refined aspects, but also remembering to bring it into daily life. And which is why you will, probably those of you who come here regularly will have heard Ajahn Abhinando, Ajahn Punya and myself always going on with an encouragement to bring awareness into the body. It's, uh, it's a very easy thing and I don't think this is just a Buddhist disease. I think all spiritual aspirants... Uh, can tend to fall into the mistake of finding the body a coarse and uncomfortable and unattractive thing. Yes, it, it can be from one perspective, but the fact is we've got one so far. You know, we'll lose it one day, but right now we've got one, and it's through the body that we're going to be living our lives. Whatever lovely, subtle experiences you might have where we're sitting on the cushion or while we're in the monastery or off on retreat. When we come back out into everyday life, it's the body that is more likely to trip us up. And so it's really important skill in our repertoire of skillful means is to have a body-based awareness. And this might be something that we uh, exercise in formal meditation with scanning, bringing awareness into the body. Or it could also be something, you know, more coarse, you know, like having a physical discipline, Uh, One of the first questions I ask young men when they come to join the monastery, do you have a physical discipline? Do you do yoga? Do you have tai chi, qigong? Something, something whereby you appreciate the relevance, the importance of bringing awareness into the body. Imbalanced appreciation of the Buddhist teaching you can hear what the Buddha said about loathsomeness of the body and an idealistic, naive, perhaps fundamentalist view would grasp at that idea and say the body is disgusting and, and then you say, oh, who's going to pay attention to the body? But, I mean, you know, there's other places in the Buddha's teaching you say, well, it's the first foundation of mindfulness. And mindfulness of The four foundations of mindfulness starts with the body. And certainly uh, bringing, maintaining harmony in, in the community has got a lot to do with how we deport ourselves, how we present ourselves, the respect that we show to each other, and which is very much to do with the body. And this is similarly another aspect of cultivating skillful means is how do we bring, how do we bring our right view, right understanding, right thinking, how do we bring our Buddhist understanding into the realm of relationships. Again, an idealistic, split-off, I would suggest naive, uh, imbalanced appreciation of the Buddhist teachings would say, bah, relationships don't matter. And I've heard this many, many times, sadly, over the years. And 
Such, uh, such comments don't contribute to increased beauty and harmony in, in the world. But it's not necessary. You say, well, you know, do I, you can, you know when, the, when we come across these limited presentations of the teachings, you say, well, you can, we can, we're, we're allowed to ask ourselves, well, does that make sense to me? Yeah. Do I go along with that? You know, it's so easy when you come across a, a spiritual teacher of any discipline, uh, you know, any particular flavour, and they're enthusiastic and bright-eyed and, and sure they're right, it's easy to get intimidated. Which is why I think it's really important, something I've talked about for years, and I practice myself, uh, and I should practice it more, but is to really hold up this experience of being intimidated as an object of investigation, as a field of investigation. At what point, in what time, in what way, how, where and when do I make myself small and weak and make them big and powerful? How do I do that? Uh, we can do it in the spiritual world just as you might do it in your professional world. Some inflated character comes along and starts bullying people and people cower and, and are afraid to say anything. And that's unfortunate. Well, the, the spiritual community can have similar elements in it. And it's important that if we come across such, such uh, incidents that we, we don't just accept it and say, oh, it's the way it is, everything's impermanent, no self, let go. Well, that's, that's, again, idealistic. When we, when we come across a teaching that we feel is partial, the teaching that we feel is not addressing the whole human being, then I think it's important that we listen to that, listen to those inner voices, not react too quickly. I mean, that can be likewise. You know, the kind of conditioning that we have in our society is, is you know, to get <coughs> confrontational and argumentative and contentious very quickly. And so we're, we're clearly not talking about that. But going to the other extreme and abdicating and being weak and being a, a good Buddhist who doesn't have an opinion about anything, that's not it either. Right view, sometimes you know, right view is, talk about, is talked about as, as not attaching to any view. And this was one of the inspirations that took me to go and live with Ajahn Chah. When, when I was asking a, a young monk who lived with Ajahn Chah, I said, what's Ajahn Chah's teaching on right view? And this young monk told me, he said, Ajahn Chah says right view is not attaching to any views. And I thought, oh, I like the sound of that because it, it, it put me in a position... It wasn't just the view that was the point. Of course, the view is important, but it put me in a position where I had to become responsible for the way I related to the view. It talked about what I could do about the views that I held, the views about karma, the views about rebirth. You know, sometimes, yes, these are technically right views, but sometimes you'll find that even Buddhists, the way they go about clinging to these teachings on karma and rebirth it becomes somehow, well, I find it disharmonious and disingenuous and not attractive. And so when Ajahn Chah held up this, the importance of the relationship to the teachings is also important. Uh, I, I, was, I was inspired by that increased my faith. But 
if one then clings to that, which is quite possible, and say, oh, Buddhists don't have views and opinions about anything. You know, or anybody expresses a view and opinion on something, and then you say, oh, Buddhists shouldn't have views and opinions. Buddhists shouldn't have preferences. Say, Again, that's missing the point. Hmm. Having views and not having views. How do we have the views is the question. There's a lovely expression in Thai, which... Um, Again, quoting Ajahn Chai, he used to talk about have, but don't have. It's make having the same as not having. And, and from one perspective, that's complete nonsense. I mean, what's this guy going on about? I mean, how ridiculous. There's having or there's not having. And he would say, no, he says, make having the same as not having. And how do you do that? Well, it's based on the relationship we have to having. So there's a view, whether it's a, a, a worldly view about something or whether it's a spiritual view, Buddhist right view, Buddhist teachings on concentration, jhana, samadhi, vipassana, satipatthana, mindfulness of the body, walking meditation, uh, political structures, all of these things that, that people talk about. Having a view in a way that contributes to increased well-being, surely is the point. Whether our view contributes to increased well-being or not is determined not just by the view, but by the way we relate to it. And so uh, the suggestions this evening about cultivating this repertoire of skillful means, what I'm trying to allude to is what I feel is a need for agility in practice, you know, to being agile. You know, it's right to assume that we're, we are approaching this path from a place of partial view, of distorted view. That's why we're unhappy. To get in line with right view, I would suggest we need to be dexterous, we need to be agile, we need to be careful. We need, even, even wholesome doubt. Fundamentalists have got a, they've got a problem with doubt. They don't doubt anything. Yeah. Personally, I think doubt is, is, is a great tool, and it helps us, you know, in our relationship with the views that we hold. So maybe, maybe not. Yeah, we don't get too sure too quick about things. And so, whether Buddhism is contributing to our situation, whether it's uh, contributing to increased well-being or not, um, I would like to think that it is. But how we measure it, how we assess it, I think if we if we look too closely and we and we are wanting Buddhism to be a tool for revolution or dramatic change, I think we're going to be disappointed. But if we look at it as a means of education, as a means of, of growing up, little by little, incremental changes. Yeah. Incremental changes, for instance, in, in our ability to tolerate, to be tolerant of differences. If that's what Buddhism contributes to our society, I think it's a precious contribution, increased tolerance. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm.